This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we unjumble an important and sometimes under-the-radar statewide story that affects you. Shayna, I, I gotta admit, I was taken aback a little bit this week by some of the headlines I saw in major, reputable news sources here in Michigan. They were all very similar, and they said something along the lines of, Breaking, 246 fully vaccinated Michigan residents contracted COVID-19, three died. Now, there is nothing factually wrong with that statement, but it does leave out some really crucial context. That's 246 cases and three deaths among 1.6 million with an M Michiganders who were fully vaccinated by the end of March. So if you break it down by percentage, and bear with me, that's math time right now, (laughs) that's 0.02% of fully vaccinated people who contracted COVID and 0.0002% who have died. And that's rounding up. And remember, no one has ever claimed that being fully vaccinated protects you 100% from contracting COVID if you're an adult. In December, the FDA said Moderna's vaccine was 94% effective overall and 95% effective for Pfizer, which is very highly effective. So perhaps the better, more responsible headline was from your former employer, Shana M. Live, which read, among 1.7 million fully vaccinated Michiganders, state identifies small number of COVID-19 infections and deaths. Although there was nothing factually wrong about the previous headlines we mentioned, there's concern that people are seeing them without that critical context and think, well, people are still getting COVID and some are even dying from it. So what's the point of even getting vaccinated? Wayne State University journalism professor Fred Valti wrote headlines as a newspaper editor for 25 years and now specializes in media framing and news practice. He says these kinds of headlines can be dangerous. Not everybody reads the whole story. And if, if you get to the 13th paragraph, you find out that that 99 number is 99.9% and it looks pretty good. It's important to note that people don't always read the whole story and that that first impression is often the one that lasts. And this is a problem among many established media sources. A recent NPR analysis found that articles connecting vaccines and death have been among the most highly engaged with content online so far in 2021. And the way that information has spread could hinder people's ability to judge the true risk of getting a vaccine. NPR reporter Miles Parks notes that you're three times more likely to get hit by lightning than die after getting a COVID shot. So I guess there's a few takeaways from all of this. First, as a news consumer or just as a person who spends any time online at all, which let's face it is all of us, try to always read further into these kinds of articles to make sure the impression you're getting from that headline matches the reality of the situation. And always try to turn to news sources you trust for that information. But of course... You know, things come up sometimes. And so in that way, a lot of the onus is on us media professionals. There's really no excuse in 2021 to leave out critical context, especially in the one and only part of every article that everyone reads.
All right, Shayna, I, I maybe got a little preachy there at the end of that piece, uh, but this is something that I do think about a lot. I feel very strongly about it. Uh, just saying, I did get my master's degree in media criticism, and I have been in the biz for 10 years now, so it's something I think about a lot. But either way, you know, it is time for me to step off my soapbox a little bit and bring in the perspective of a, of a true expert here. Jake, you are relieved from duty. <laughs> As we mentioned earlier, we got the chance to talk about about all of these issues at length with Wayne State University Associate Professor of Journalism Fred Valti. Now, he spent 25 years as a newspaper editor and wrote a lot of headlines during that time. And now he specializes in media framing, content analysis, and news practice. And so here is our conversation with Fred Valti. Fred, welcome to Mishmash. Thanks a bunch. Love the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks, Fred. So you've seen these headlines. As someone who has written quite a few or, or rewritten quite a few headlines in your day, what do you think about them? What was your initial reaction to them? And and talk a little bit about the sort of the media framing and, you know, proper news practice. Honestly, the first thing I saw, and I read the paper uh, on a PDF every morning, it's kind of my way of being old fashioned. The first time I, uh, my first thought when I saw this was kind of, it. this is a Chicago 7 question. So what does Chicago 7 mean? If you've seen the movie, it means one thing. If it's Chicago 7, Milwaukee's one, it's a baseball score. Green Bay 27, Chicago 7, it's a football score. Chicago 7, Winnetka 28, it's a road sign. Um, meaning it's kind of hard for us to tell in the audience out here what 246, uh, that's the headline I'm looking at, is supposed to tell us. So one of the first things to me that a headline needs to do in there is kind of pick which it's doing and it's good to remember here that in journalism, they're serving a pretty important purpose. We never want to tell our newspapers, our websites, our TV stations, not to be watchdogs of the public interest, not to look for numbers that need to get our attention, not to present them in prominent ways. And, and important too, you know, we never want to tell people don't make those judgments independently. But one question that we can raise here is, um, do we have the context we need before we decide if this is football, baseball, road sign, or whatever? So my first question on that is some, I'm supposed to think 246 is important. Words aren't neutral in a case like this. So she was only a student, but she was honest. She was only a student and she was honest are two really different sentences that have conjunctions. And this is sort of a, what we could call a fully only question. You know, fully 75% of seniors have been vaccinated versus only 75% of seniors have been vaccinated. So I think something else when I see still got the virus versus only 246 in Michigan got the virus. So those are framing choices that um, we can see why they're made. Okay, we want, to, we want a press that's a watchdog. We want a press that questions what authorities tell it. We want a, quest, a press that makes these decisions independently. But we also want that, that want one that comes out uh, on kind of the right side of the framing question. Did you leave me thinking what I should about this, which is my chances are better than I thought. You know, I had, I had the second shot almost three weeks ago. What I'd like for this to tell me is that my odds are higher than that initial estimate that, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a deckhead that says 99% effective. The story says it's more like 99.99%. Now it's never going to be a hundred, but what I want this headline to tell me is that my risk is better than I thought it was, not that my risk is worse than I thought it was. And this headline doesn't tell me your risk is bad. 
But to me, that's not the same thing as telling me what it should tell me, which is my risk is not as bad as I thought it might be. Um, and that's, you know, I, I don't want to tell journalists not to do their jobs or to tell them to do their jobs my way. But that's a case where I'd say, why don't we look at ways we can do our jobs while doing it better, doing it more effectively, making sure that we're delivering just that one message that we want to deliver. So would you go as far as to say, Fred, that you think that there's a risk of these headlines being misleading or to leave an impression on readers that it does not reflect a true sense of what the numbers mean? Given how people approach news, sure. Uh, not everybody reads the whole story. And if, if you get to the 13th paragraph, you find out that that 99 number is 99.9% and it looks pretty good. Um, it's important to note that people don't always read the whole story and that that first impression is often the one that lasts. And also, though, that media messages don't have that one single big effect that maybe 100 years ago when radio was brand new, uh, when we were just coming out of a world war, that we feared that they did. So it's not likely that somebody who sees this the first time and says, well, that's it, no vaccine for me, it's not going to be their reaction to this headline. That might be their reaction uh, to this headline in context of what they know, what their families told them, uh, what their pastor told them, what the neighbor next door said when they're both taking out the garbage Wednesday morning. So I don't want to say that you know this, this one headline is going to make people say, bang, no vaccine. What this can do is maybe amplify or see I told you so or remind you that your initial idea, I am scared of vaccines, might have been the right one to think about. So, you know, we're not going to say offhand that this media message makes people get up and walk across the room and turn off the TV. But we say that if it amplifies the wrong ideas, we'd rather have it steer in the in the direction of amplifying the right ideas. And again, that doesn't mean that, that I think the free press is being malicious about this. There are media organizations um, when I look at foxnews.com and see mother dies hours after getting second COVID vaccine, I tend to think there's a different sort of motive than the public or a differently expressed motive than this public watchdog idea. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say they're as culpable as a more partisan news site might be. I am saying it's worth watching out for. What about um, sort of the reader responsibility to actually click on the article and go through and and read the entire article? I know that a lot of uh, people have been giving that defense that, hey, you got to read the whole article. I think even, what is it, Twitter or Facebook will now have a little thing pop up if you haven't read the article and say, hey, are you sure you want to post this because you got to read the whole article? I guess, is that is that sufficient? I guess, how do you respond to sort of the reader's responsibility in all this? If, if I walked outside and it was raining uh, Halloween-sized Milky Way bars and gumdrops, I'd be really happy, too. Um, over many years in journalism, I haven't found that it's really effective to tell people they have to read the whole story because people are going to make rational decisions about their own time. Um, in the good old days, you know, when somebody put their, their 50 cents in the news rack and bought a free press, okay, all the advertising is paid for in advance. You don't have to read my whole story to get the message. Nowadays, things are different when maybe a click makes it more mandatory and that your funding might be driven, even in, in some cases I'm starting to hear about, paychecks might be driven by the number of clicks you get on a story. And we can know that pretty quickly. Um, that makes it a bit of a challenge, even with that in place. You know, it's hard to say everybody ever read every story. And frankly, do we want to tell them that? You know, if they look at this headline and get the message from this headline and say, what I really need is that story today about the trial in Minneapolis. What I need to spend my name, my time on today is, my God, what happened to my 401k? Uh, if they're rationally allotting their time towards those stories, we shouldn't tell them you're bad people because you didn't read to the 13th paragraph. 
we got to the fifth paragraph, fine. Maybe that says that we need to work on that that balance between how quickly do you present the context. And, you know, again, we can't say they didn't present context. What we can say is you probably had to wait until the 13th paragraph to get the most useful context for you. And again, we, you know, we don't want to be in the position of telling the reader, bad, bad reader, no, no coffee for you until you get all the way through all the front page stories, then you can read your sports. Um, we have to kind of split the responsibility with them there a little bit, I think. So just to follow up on that, do you think that there needs to be some sort of a rethinking of how newspapers and online outlets are structuring their stories? I know that there has been, at least when I was in print, you know, there's a very, there's almost like a formula to it. Do you think we should be rethinking that? I think it's worth, um, that's, it's always worth rethinking that. I think some of the circumstances we're in, uh, the click environment is one of them, make it even more important to rethink some of them at certain times. And it's important to point out we've already rethought a lot of these. And we can see some of the traces of that over the years. We think very differently. We, and Here I am talking about a profession I left, uh, you know, 18 years ago, um, we think very differently about matters like gender and ethnicity than we did before. Uh, it might have looked like a heavy lift at the time, but we were able to do that. It's not that we're perfect about that. It's not that we, um, oh, to me, one of the most important developments in how we rethink this last summer was when the Associated Press decided, for example, it would capitalize Black in culture, ethnicity references in its news stories. And that was an interesting, it's a small typographical thing, but it's a really interesting cultural choice. And maybe in connection with other print media like academic writing kind of overdue. Now, that doesn't mean we still don't get stories where we just kind of scratch our heads and say, what? You know, if you're saying uh, a fight started between two two black males in the mall today, it doesn't matter if you capitalize it or not. We're still saying, why is, is the ethnicity the first thing that comes to mind? So making these changes doesn't mean we'll be perfect about them. It doesn't mean we'll get them right every time. It does mean that they're easier than they look. And, you know, we still got some barriers to deal with here, right? Uh, one of them is this really strong cultural presumption that news isn't about why you're safe. News is about why you're in trouble. And this, this will probably sound familiar from your print days. Uh, what, what's your favorite cliche about journalism? Oh, if it bleeds, it leads. There's a good one. Um, how about it ain't news if a dog bites a man, but if a man bites a dog, that's news, right? What do you say when the nuclear power company calls up and says, why didn't you write about all the reactors that didn't melt down today? <laughs> Reactor that melts down isn't news, is it? So we have this strong bias toward news is, is not always something negative. It's something that happened. It's something that's different from yesterday. And we want people to remember that. And I think we can approach this again. We don't want to go around saying bad headline writer, bad, you know, no dessert for you. We do want to say, why don't we think about this being news a different way? The news is the proportion of infections among fully vaccinated people January to March. Let's put that number first. Let's think about the the fully versus only question. Is this a still or an only? You know, is it 246 still got virus or only 246 got virus? Um, again, nothing, nothing you can't be a good watchdog and still do, just a little bit of a different way of restacking those responsibilities. And maybe saying that the Sort of like when somebody wants to write it's official or Christmas came early or up, up and away in a headline. We say, if it's the first thing that comes to mind, lie down and wait till something else comes to mind. Okay, we can, we can do it with it's official. We can do it with Christmas came early. We can do it with the fully versus only question or the percentage versus raw number question. So I had a conversation with someone that I'm close with uh, who saw one of these headlines. I'm not going to say exactly who it was, but that person saw the headline well working 
and did not have time to read the article. So later on, they asked me to explain what this was all about. And before I attempted to explain, I asked this person to tell me what their impression was after seeing that headline. Uh, What did it make them think? And the response was, it makes me wonder if getting vaccinated is pointless. That was the quote. Now, this is a person with a master's degree, very media literate, smart. This is a critical thinker. uh, But they simply just didn't have the capacity at the time to read past the headline uh, because they were working. And I think it's a a great example of this problem where we're talking about with the idea of being concerned about these headlines and tweets uh, is somehow insulting to the audience that, you know, um, that any any pushback is like, well, why didn't they read the article? Well, there's a lot of reasons people might not read the article, which I think you've touched on a little bit. But uh, again, uh, another example of that. Yeah, a long time ago, and I think it was James Carey, a really, really cool cultural scholar of communication, said that one of the things we do wrong in journalism is we tend to treat and this is going to date both me and the comment a little bit. We tend to treat the Soviet Union as a three-credit graduate course instead of a news story. And that when we come in today, you know, today's fighting in the Politburo and who's standing next to whom during the uh, the May Day Parade in Red Square, we tend to think everybody's been showing up for the last 12 weeks and doing all the reading and passing, you know, answering all the discussion questions and passing the tests, rather than some people are coming to the Soviet Union cold. And some people are coming to, oh, look, there's Brezhnev next to Yakovlev on on the Kremlin wall saluting Lenin or whatever. And they already know all the players. And your friends is a case in point of that. We can't count on everybody to do it. We can't count on even the the smart, alert, attentive people to have paid attention to everything in the 12 preceding weeks. And it a lot of the cliches that we come up with in journalism, you know, uh, if it bleeds, it leads are oriented around good cultural assumptions, get people's attention, talk about what's important. Um, What we sometimes think of is that surveillance function. Um, Some scholars date this back to prehistoric times. When you stick your head out of the cave, you got to know if it's a saber-toothed tiger, right? First thing you got to know before you go out and and start your day as a hunter-gatherer. All these things are, are good. They're good, important signaling mechanisms for headlines to have, but they remind us that when we give a signal, we need to be aware of it. There's not, there's not a neutral condition of framing. If things things have a frame, whether we want them to or not, we can either choose it or have it chosen for us. And in this case, that entails a little bit to me of a responsibility of saying we got to know what it is, what the frame says that we're presenting stuff in. And the choices, the raw number versus the proportion, for example, or the still versus only, aren't, uh, they aren't accidents, they aren't handed down at Mount Sinai. They're, They're choices we make. And when we make those choices, we can also make other choices. Again, this is perfectly natural. You know, people in journalism usually aren't trained in numbers, but they have this instinctive approach. We know when the uh, you know the semifinals in the men's basketball tournament when it's a squeaker or when it's a blowout. Is that sometimes determined by zip code? Sure, a lot of framing is determined by zip code. When beginning beginning of this semester, I showed my my graduate methods class um, five newspapers from the state where the team that won the Super Bowl plays, five newspapers from the, the losing team. Um, which ones of those were objective? Were the ones where the Super Bowl looked like great news or where it looked like bad news? Which of those were objective? And the answer is they all were. It's just they were objective about different stuff based on the zip code that you're in. So again, when we can make a decision like that, when we can say, let's know this before we say happy football player versus sad football player is the iconic photo of the day. Let's admit that we know that. Let's admit that we make decisions like that and go ahead and make decisions like that. Let's choose the frame rather than having the frame chosen for us. 
you know, we often talk about fake news and bad actors who are trying to mislead the audience. And you touched on this a little bit. Uh, but what are the things that we as journalists and media professionals should keep in mind to make sure that we're not unintentionally misleading people? What are, I guess, your sort of top tips for for reporters and journalists? Okay, cool. Cool question. Um one way that we might put that again is with my old copy editor hat on is, um, do we need to make this less exciting? Or we, should we think twice about what we're being exciting about? If we, we look, let's look at some other things that we might think about as fake news, like polling results. And, you know, we all have both been journalists. You can think back to your newspaper time. If your statehouse reporter with 30 years of experience um, has a Let's flash back in time and say a Rolodex full of every name in your state legislature tells you, my instinct tells me that this is what the public opinion poll says versus your recent MA graduate who had a course in statistics and said, no, actually it doesn't. That's not what those numbers mean. They, they really can't mean that. Who's going to win that argument? Part of that might be that we don't always allot expertise based on what we know about what the numbers say, but these intangible things. And again, we don't want to discourage those. We don't want to say journalists shouldn't listen to their instincts, shouldn't listen to their gut. What we can say is, are we listening to that in conjunction with the right other things? So one of my first steps is when we see something exciting or think a number, that's a natural headline. And we've all done that. We've, so you might've heard the cliche, the lead that writes itself. Right. You, you've, you've seen a story, Jake, you've seen a story where you don't even have to think about the lead. It, you put your hands on the keyboard and it comes out. Um, I, I wish it happened more often, but yeah. <laughs> when it does happen, again, take your hands off the keyboard for a second and say, why? Right. Why, why did this lead write itself in this particular way? And if the numbers tell you this is probably a non-significant change, this is a change that's as likely to have come about by accident, by fluctuation in sampling, as it is by a real movement in the population, why am I excited about that? Doesn't mean mm -hmm. that that poll isn't a good story. It means it's a poll, it's a good story about something else. So right. a takeaway on that might be what's interesting, uh, what's valuable about numbers might not always be exciting and what's exciting might not always be valuable. So first time, whenever, whenever you type a number in, ask your, ask your question, is, it, is this here because it's exciting or is it here because it's valuable? Does it help you make a decision that's in your best end? We're not, we can't sit here and tell people do this about the vaccine because they might make, they have very different perceptions about risk than we do. We can say, here's how you can make a decision that reflects your best interest. Um, Sidelight on that for a little bit that isn't a journalism tip is that risk is a funny creature, right? Um, and risk isn't, risk isn't always about the numbers. Let's, let's portion that off and call that hazard for a second. We can calculate hazard. Um, you might not do it when you're taking, when you're thinking surface street or freeway to go home today. Um, that, why think about that? Those are still real hazards. You just don't think about them when you work it in there. Risk is when we take hazard, this number we can calculate and combine it with outrage. Um, are we, um, were we consulted when we were asked to take a risk on? Does it look like it's a fairly distributed risk? Um, have we seen it before? Does it look like the process that, oh, you get the risk and I don't get the risk is fair? Or is it just you're in a Southwest zip code and I'm not? Um, these are questions that go into kind of the outrage side. And when people are calculating risk, you can understand why they don't just look at the number because they're looking at if you've ever had that conversation where somebody then says, you know, you give them the numbers about that, that vaccine and they say, yes, but it's not your kid. 
That's a hard one to answer um, because we don't make risk based solely on that. There's that proximity to us. We think differently about risks that we face rather than the risks that you face. Um, again, for the, because Shane's question is about good tips for journalists, is put that other hat on for a second and understand how people might be interpreting risk. Because when we think about what this headline might do, it's partly about not, not what does it mean to everybody with a master's degree who only has time for one headline because they're at work. Stop me if you've never read a headline at work and gone back to work. Um, right. But at the same time, what's it mean to somebody who somebody else who doesn't have time to make that decision or who looks at the numbers and then sit, multiplies them by, yes, but it's my kid. Yes, but it's my parents. Combined with, yes, but I heard this from my neighbor when I took out the garbage yesterday morning. You can start to see that. So uh, kind of planning ahead, it's not where not where the puck was yesterday, but that'll skate where the puck is going to be cliche. Let's go ahead and skate to where the audience is with this. Let's let's think about the things that might be making their decision and see what context we need to add to help them make that decision in a way that reflects their interests. So I'll admit, um, I was pretty openly critical of these headlines on social media this week. Uh, I, and I don't regret that because I actually, I think that it sparked some really important conversations. Uh, but I did get some pushback from a couple of journalists, uh, pretty well-established journalists, uh, who said that media professionals and journalists should not be criticizing the work of their peers in public. The term uh, glass houses was thrown out there. Uh, but, but Fred, I'm curious what you think of this. I, I feel really uh, very firmly that we're facing a trust crisis in journalism and media right now. I feel like building trust uh, to address that in part really does require us to be self-critical and to have those conversations out in the public and out in the open. Uh, we as journalists, you know, we, we demand this kind of transparency from public officials. I feel pretty strongly that we should also expect it of ourselves. But I'm curious what you think of that. I am. Uh, I have to agree with you on that. Sure. Um, my favorite press critic and uh, okay. So I, w I was a really bad journalism student because I didn't want to grow up and be Woodward and Bernstein. <laughs> I wanted to grow up and be AJ Liebling. I wanted to be the guy who who said, "Why is it that management always offers and labor always demands in a, in a strike story?" I wanted to be the person who said, "Freedom of the press is only guaranteed to those who own one." Um, suggesting that informed criticism of the press is as important as informed criticism by the press. And when the Supreme Court has talked about it, they've said that, you know, the First Amendment ain't just there for balloons and puppies and birthday cake. It's there because an informed outside critic of government and society is essential to how we do little d democracy. And having that, that criticism come from within the press, having people who know how the press works talk about that, to me, is much more valuable than somebody who doesn't know how the press works. And one hates to call out a Sean Hannity or a Tucker Carlson here. I'd much rather have journalists saying, let's not write this headline than Sean Hannity saying, you little puppets of the Chinese Communist Party. Hmm. You know, I'd rather have people who know what it means to do this talking about it than people whose only goal is to let's see if we can drag CNN down a few other a uh, few more pegs today. So I'm all about that. I'd much rather when somebody who has written the headline, has written the story, knows what we mean when we say, if it bleeds, it leads, looks at this and said, yeah, wrong blood, wrong lead. You know, 
I'd, I'd rather we do it than somebody coming and think they need to do it for us. Uh, sorry about the pushback. Um, it's probably not surprising. Um, if you've ever been the person that told somebody else, I'm sorry, that was a great lead. But uh, but the, every time you say Christmas came early, an angel <laughs> dies. <laughs> you know, um, so we, we do have to tell people that. Uh, we've heard the cliches before. You do need to talk to that extra person. Um, again, you're thinking, thinking back to routines that we've changed. One of the challenges to doing an exit poll by standing outside until you talk to five people or doing the um, the fabled, I'm, I'm doing the air quotes here for the gender, to the man on the street interview by only talking to people who look like you means you're going to get the view of people who look like you. We kind of had to unlearn that. We had to learn how to do that routine differently. That suggests we can learn how to do these routines differently too. Um, it's it's uncomfortable. Uh, journalism is kind of built around knowing, knowing what to do. I was... Uh, I wanted to be sure to bring up the uh, the old days of, of journalism scholarship here because it was a back in the old days we didn't go to journalism school to get a PhD right you went to University of Chicago you studied sociology you came back with a degree in that so a guy named Warren Breed 65 years ago wrote a wonderful piece called Social Control in the Newsroom and he he'd worked for a Hearst paper in California back in the in the 50s or late 40s early 50s and the point he made in an interview after that was nobody ever had to tell you when a story be should begin with bands playing and flags flying, because by the time you worked for a William Randolph Hearst paper, you knew it. You knew when a story began, bands playing and flags flying, otherwise you wouldn't have been hired. We learn about this not just by somebody who says, well, here's a rule, do this, but who gets yelled at for the story? When does the city editor say, hey, great job with this? When does that story go on the front page and yours goes on, you know, B27? Right. So we learned this by watching. We learned this by doing. And we really get set in these ways. So, you know, habits are a strong thing to break. And it's a really useful guide sometimes. Point to take away from that is they aren't all good habits. Uh, not everything we do is is a useful habit. Some of these instinct um, hunch versus let's let's ask the data what they really say. Um, negative is always better. We tend to confuse, I think, sometimes the idea of independence with the idea of opposition. Now, again, we don't want to be in the position where we ever say, hey, the government said this, it must be true, print it just as they said it. We never want a press that does that, right? But we want a press that realizes we can come to that decision independently. We can look at the data and if our independent decision is the same as the government's, it's not a bad thing to make this headline say proportion and only versus raw number and still. That could still be an independent, instinct-driven, if you want to, decision. It's just one that we could pay a little bit more attention to. Was there anything else you wanted to add, Fred, or anything else that we should talk about? No, that was really thorough. Those were those were some great questions and some great thoughts. I, I would add, you know, Jake, my sympathies. You know, it's 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 no fun when people in the profession yell at you. And whenever we look at the employment numbers, yeah, we can say I don't want anybody else yelling at the press because we've got it bad enough right now. You know, we we all know people who thought they'd be in journalism forever. I, I could quote another great AJ Liebling piece about that from the last times there were big fall-offs in newspaper employment. We don't, when we're under siege like that, it really seems almost unfair for anybody else to criticize it, but a lot better for us to do it, for the people who can make good, could make good suggestions about how to do it better and can do them with news principles in mind than that somebody just come along and beat us on the head with a stick for the heck of it. Fred Volte, Associate Professor of Journalism at Wayne State University. Really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time. I'm going to go ice my neck from, uh, I think I may have pulled in muscle from nodding so much this uh, <laughs> during this conversation. But again, thank you for taking the time. Really appreciate this. Well, I appreciate it. Um, it's great talking with you. I'm looking forward to hearing the podcast itself. And um, 
best thing we can say about reading the press critically is please keep doing it. All right, that's all for Mishmash this week. I'm Jake Neer. And I'm Shana Roth. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.